Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Candace Gibson, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there, Candace. So today we have uh, an email reply from a listener, and this one is from Andy Hartman, and he wanted to know something about the Spanish-American War, which I thought was a really good excuse because it's always been one of those, you know, mysterious corners of American history that you know you sort of skip over in history class. And I wanted to know more about it. So he asks about the dates regarding the Spanish-American War because there's a monument in Sacramento, California, that he's seen that gives the dates as 1898 to 1902. But if you look at the dates in a history book, you'll notice that the Spanish surrendered in 1898. So So. it was just four months long. Exactly, it was. It was quick. John Hay said it was a splendid little war. (laughs) (laughs) Short and and sweet. Yeah, and there are a couple different answers, but before we go into that, we we should talk a little about the war itself and things that led up to it. Exactly. Give you guys all some background. So what's significant about the Spanish-American War is that it was based on the United States' response to rebels in Cuba who'd been oppressed under Spanish colonial rule for a long time, and there had been some uprisings before, but finally there was enough guerrilla action going under the leadership of... um well, of many people, really, but Jose Marti was really incendiarian and really got the forces fired up. And what else is significant is that the United States didn't just lend a helping hand to Cuba, but by doing so, really established itself as one of the great imperial powers of the world. And in the United States, there were anti-imperialists who were pretty ticked off about this. So we see that it leads to controversy, just not not just on the battlefield, but also in ideology and politics, too. That's right. And you look back on the uh, age of exploration, which is really like when Spain got all these territories in the first place. It was before uh, the United States emerged. Obviously, the United States was kind of a result of this age of exploration. So Spain had gotten, it was really one of the first and most powerful countries to start colonizing places in the Americas in particular. So they uh, they got all these powers, but by um, the 19th century, they had lost a lot of these lands. Uh, Cuba was one of those places they still held on to, um, although there was lots of unrest there, as Candace was saying. There was the Ten Years' War between 1868 and 1878, um, ten years long, obviously, where the Cuba fought for independence and basically lost. And on the treaty, Spanish tried to promise, oh, we'll give you more powers and we'll give you more autonomy, but it didn't really work out the way they wanted. And by 1898, there was still violence breaking out. And so Spain had control over Cuba, and they also had control over Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and Guam. And something interesting was happening at this time, and if you think about these different island nations, you'll note that they're not all in the same corner of the sea. They're, mm-hmm. they're pretty disparate. And President McKinley actually had a military advisor named Alfred T. Mahan, who was saying that your nation is only as strong as its navy is. And so it was important to have different naval stations throughout the, the Caribbean and, and other parts of the oceans around the world. And um, he even advocated for building a canal across the Isthmus of Panama, which eventually happened, but not quite yet. And so the United States thought, huh, this is a pretty good idea. And sort of in an auspicious turn of events, Cuba was asking for the United States help in throwing off Spain's power, and the United States was thinking, how can we throw ourselves at island nations and increase our 
uh, our naval strength. And so all of this came together in a perfect storm of the Spanish-American War. That's right. And so public sentiment was was very um, geared towards getting Cuba free. And so um, a lot of people were arguing we should get involved, we should get involved. And nothing actually happened um for real until the explosion of the Maine. Now the USS Maine was uh was a American ship that was or sorry to say a United States ship that was sent uh towards Cuba to help look after American interests there, US interests. So it mysteriously exploded one day, February fifteenth, eighteen ninety eight, and it killed all the members on board, about more than two hundred and fifty US soldiers, I believe. No one really knows what happened to this day no one is exactly sure what happened with the explosion. At the time, it was kind of assumed that Spain was responsible. And not everybody believed this. Um, President McKinley launched uh, um, an inquiry into what happened, and uh, nothing was very conclusive. And by the 1970s, actually, they looked back on it, and forensic evidence showed that it was probably a result of a, uh, I believe, the coal bunker. Um, there was a mistake there, and something went wrong and exploded. But again, it's one of those cases of you get a big and tall and bold enough headline on a newspaper and you're going to get a lot of rallying support from the public. And when the public screams loudly enough, typically the president has to respond in some way. And what's interesting about press generated during the Spanish-American War or actually right before the Spanish-American War is that there were two competing newspapers at this time. And the men behind them, William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer, they wanted to get their copies sold. And so you've probably heard of yellow journalism, and this comes from the idea of embellishing stories and creating untruths about what was going on in the world at that time. And and Cuba was the perfect place uh, to make splashy news like this. And so uh, supposedly, Hearst even told one of his reporters, you furnish the pictures and I will furnish the war. Mm -hmm. Because the newspapers were receiving pictures of Cubans who'd been put into concentration camps and, and other outlets, and they were being tortured supposedly by the Spanish, and they were awful images. But when he sent reporters over there, there wasn't actually a whole lot going on. So there wasn't much of a story to write. We knew that there were injustices, but we couldn't exactly, you know, put our hands on what was happening and how the United States should help because it was so unclear. Mm-hmm. And so the the newspapers were able to create the story themselves and get people involved. And shortly after the Maine and this cry of remember the Maine, uh, U.S. Congress drafted a declaration of war against Spain. That's right. And uh, Hearst is really interesting also because he not only sort of made up these stories, he capitalized on this um, imminent war as much as he could. And Hearst actually made a card game called War with Spain, and he started a fund to build a Maine memorial um, dedicated to the USS Maine, and he actually offered a $50,000 reward for anyone who could solve the mystery of the explosion. Oh, nice. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And um, when war was all out called, like you said, uh, Candace, um, he actually referred to it as the Journal's War, as if he he started it himself. Hubris. I'll tell you. But it worked. It worked. Mm -hmm, It got a reluctant United States into war with Spain. And, you know, I I quoted John Hay earlier saying it was a splendid little war. It was just four months long. And and really, 
that's how it went. I mean, there were these U.S. troops who started getting shuffled out to different island nations that Spain still owned. And the Cuban campaign was one of the, the dirtiest and, and most awful because the troops that got sent were so ill-equipped to deal with the conditions there. Um, they sent one of the first black uh, infantries to Cuba to fight. Uh, this was shortly after the military had been somewhat desegregated. They were moving toward desegregation, and they found that there was not adequate food. They were given really heavy woolen uniforms, and obviously it's way too hot in Cuba for that. And the fighting was just pretty bloody, and the troops were outnumbered against the Spanish troops. And so victory for them really came on the seas because the Spanish mm-hmm. Navy was very, very poor compared to the um, state-of-the-art ships that the American troops had. Yeah, and adding to the food problem, um, there was also problems with the actual food. Uh, soldiers were complaining about it, and they said the, the beef tasted horrible, and there was this scandal that broke out in the U.S. at the time that they were eating embalmed beef. And somebody said this word, and it, and it caught fire, and people were like, what the heck is that? Um, and that uh, turned out to be a rumor, I believe. Uh, but basically, the they think the heat of like the Cuban summer... Um, made it so the the uh, meat did not last very well. And uh, they were not eating very well over there in Cuba anyway. So, And a lot of them contracted yellow fever mm-hmm. and other diseases from being in Cuba and being exposed to these conditions. And numbers that I've heard range, but they approximate that 5,400 died in the Cuban campaign. And of that, only about 380 of these deaths were actually due to battle Mm -hmm. and in combat with the Spanish forces. So if you can imagine, that's what was going on. And one of the more interesting parts, to me at least, and some people say they're sort of overrated, but it's fun to imagine, you know, Teddy Roosevelt on a horse, you know, as a rough rider. Oh, yeah. Uh, The rough riders came in, and this was a very... um, a very sort of a potpourri of men, everyone from artists to very wealthy men to politicians. And Roosevelt at that time uh, felt that he had to do something to help out with the Cuban campaign. And so they all got together and they, they rode on their horses. And the African-American soldiers from uh, the 9th Cavalry were very instrumental in helping them to take the battle at Kettle Hill. And they were able to outmaneuver the Spanish again, even if they were outnumbered. That's right. And that's partly what made this war so quick. Um, uh, one of the major battles we should mention, uh, the first battle that happened in the war, uh, was, it happened actually not in Cuba or near it. It happened all the way over in the Philippines, uh, in Manila Bay. And Admiral George Dewey, basically, it it was Teddy Roosevelt, like you mentioned, he was involved with the Rough Riders, but before that, he was actually giving out orders, um, uh, to for Ad- Admiral George Dewey to bring his squadron over to Hong Kong to get ready to go to the Philippines, and when uh, Dewey actually got to the Philippines, it was it was basically hands down uh, victory for the United States, and that really set the tone for the war. I think it did, it did, because there was that chain of success. You know, once the United yeah. States had won enough victories in Cuba, and then once they started winning more victories in the Philippines. Everyone was was happy because they could see, you know, the beginning of the end. And a really key figure from the Philippines was Emilio Aguinaldo. And um, he was very, very excited about the prospect of the Philippines gaining independence from Spain. And along with the Filipinos, there were about 11,000 U.S. troops that came along to help out Aguinaldo. And he actually declared independence from Spain on behalf of the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And um, 
he was able to commission the U.S. troops to help him out. And once they were able to declare victory there, the United States moved on to Guam. But then things got kind of messy when, when Spain eventually surrendered. They were like, okay, you've got us, you know, you're in Guam now. Mm-hmm. We can, we can easily see, you know, Puerto Rico is next and we're going to be losing all of our territories. So they agreed to sign a peace treaty. But then Aguinaldo got upset because now the United States was in a position where it could have control of the Philippines. And he thought, well, who are these men I was fighting alongside? And even the anti-imperialists, getting too excited and speaking too fast, even the anti-imperialists in America were saying, who is America anymore? Our nation had been founded on the precept of freedom from tyranny and freedom from imperial powers, and now we've become one of them ourselves. So it was a really big struggle that went up to the Supreme Court about how to disseminate these lands the U.S. had gained. Yeah, and uh, it's a controversial issue even to this day because um, you could make the argument, and they did at the time as well, that uh, the countries that they just liberated from Spanish rule uh, needed to get on their feet now. And are we going to just let them be? And like, what would happen if anarchy ensues or whatever? Like, they don't have uh, a very stable transition, and maybe we should stick around and try to make that work. Sounds and, like a pretty familiar story, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> a lot of uh, uh, connections to the day today, of course. And so that was the ultimate question. What do we do with these territories? So the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately made a couple of decisions. Uh, Puerto Rico was incorporated. Uh, the Philippines remained unincorporated. And the Cubans were allowed to write their own constitution, but the United States was still allowed to send troops there. And ultimately, Cuba became a protectorate of the United States. That's right. And this was principally because of something called the Teller Amendment, which was attached onto the permission that Congress gave McKinley when they originally said, yes, go ahead and use whatever you can to go protect Cuba and liberate them from the Spanish. Uh, they tacked on the, the Teller Amendment to say, when you're done liberating uh, the Cubans, you need to leave them alone. And uh, there were, of course, like provisions that like, okay, you can make sure it's stable there. But, but by 1902, uh, the U.S. mostly had left there and they had um, relinquished their military government control over Cuba by that time. So this brings us back to the question of the monument. I found one book called Lies Across America by James W. Lowen. And he points to this idea to where some monuments say, like uh, like Andy Hartman, our listener, said, that they give the dates of the war from 1898 to 1902. And he claims this is because it's actually looping in the war uh, of the Philippine-American war, American war, where the Filipinos wanted to oust the Americans after the Americans ousted the Spanish. And that didn't settle or stabilize until 1902. And so, I mean, I don't know if I if I agree with Lowen on this point, because you could also say that the uh, monuments are looping in the idea that Cuba wasn't exactly left alone until 1902. But at least it's an attempt at answering that question. That's true. That's true. But either way, I think the monument is wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe we'll take about a collection and go out there and fix it. Anybody? Anybody at all? I'd like to go to California. I know I could use it right now. It's sort of cloudy and gray in Atlanta yeah. these days. But I'm so glad that Andy wrote and asked that question because it gave us an opportunity to talk about an oft-forgotten war. And I didn't know that much about it, so it was really fun to explore. So if anyone else has any fun ideas or questions that they would like answered, be sure to email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And in the interim, you can quench your thirst for history knowledge by visiting the website at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.